Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. We're very excited about this episode. In a show about teaching and learning, we want to be very intentional about giving space to student voices as well as faculty voices. Students, of course, are equal partners in this process, and they have very important insights to share with us, as you'll hear today. This episode features three graduate students from different programs within the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Aishwarya Ayer, who also goes by Aishu, is a third-year MD-PhD student conducting her thesis work in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. She did her undergraduate work at UMBC, where she was also a Division I tennis player. Here at UMB, she is involved in student government and serves on the university's Sustainability Committee. Our second guest, Chris Goodis, is a second-year PhD student in the Pharmaceutical Sciences Department, where he's studying small molecule therapeutics for a variety of cancers. Chris did his undergraduate work in his home state of Michigan. Here, he serves as the USGA representative of the Queer Student Alliance, helping different LGBTQIA groups on campus come together and grow an environment of inclusivity. And Jeff Lee is studying to become a physician assistant here at the university. He's in his first year of PA school, where he serves as president of the class of 2022. A College Park grad, Jeff took some time off to pursue his passion for music, which he still enjoys, before being called back into the world of healthcare. Jeff, Chris, and Aishu, welcome to Moving the Needle. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, really, what we'd like to start with is exploring um, the the teaching strategies and approaches. You're, you're each in different kinds of programs, balancing research and didactic learning and, and clinical learning. And we'd really love to just get a sense of what teaching strategies you've noticed since you've been in graduate school that really work for you, that resonate with you. What have you learned about yourself as a learner in your graduate studies? Um, Aishu, why don't we start with you? So in terms of strategies, I... I really appreciate that. I think faculty know that different students learn differently. And one thing I really appreciated in med school is that all the lectures were recorded. And so professors speak at different paces and at different rates. And with recordings, you can, you know, speed up or slow down a lecture and you can rewatch it multiple times. And there's just it, it really helps because that's not something that I that I had in undergrad. And that's something I'm noticing now in graduate school that like a lot of because it's online, a lot of the professors are recording their lectures. And I don't know if that was something that happened pre-COVID, but it's really helpful in studying for exams. And I hope that's something that they take forward. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, that um, having that flexibility to to um, receive the information at uh, at a pace that works for you. Um, and so you're not missing something just because you might have literally missed hearing it uh, while you were thinking about some, you know, thinking about what you had just heard. That's great. Jeff, how about you? What, what are some teaching and learning strategies that you've learned uh, through your undergraduate or your time in PA school uh, strategies that that faculty employ that really work for you? Yeah. So one thing that I really appreciate the faculty does is they're so they're like 100 percent behind you. So like the 
the ratio of like faculty to students, it's almost like a one to one in, in essence, because they're just you can reach out to them like any hour of the time and any hour of the day. Like my um, professor Newman, one of my professors, she I know she works like 24 seven. And anytime I email her, she can instantly email me back with a question, what, any questions I have, and she just answers it right away. And and they any any students who are struggling anyway, they do they'll set up meetings, and so it's very personal. And so I mean, pretty much it's like no student left behind kind of thing, where yeah. So so they they just make sure that you they um, give you all the resources possible. Yeah. To succeed. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, there's there's a growing field of research in uh, in in education around the social emotional side of learning. And it sounds like feeling supported and and knowing that your faculty really have your back and are, are on your team rooting for you really makes a big difference for you. That's great. Chris, how about you? What are some teaching and learning strategies uh, it, it, that you notice, you know, you have a little bit of less of the clinical focus, but more in the research side and the and the academic side? Can you tell us a little bit about that? The way I would explain this is like, if you remember back in undergrad, when they would give you those post-class surveys or those like course evaluations, and you fill them out, and then like, let's say you're, you're, you're freshman year, you fill out a bunch of surveys and then senior year you talk to the freshmen you're like oh did they change this this or that and they're like no they just everything's completely the same as it was four years ago i find that in graduate school it's the like inertia let's say is a lot less so like for example last year when i was taking the courses that now a, fir a new first year is taking it was completely different even though they kept the same structure of like exam, exam, exam through online. Now they're doing less exams, more short, more like essay questions, more like collaborative stuff. And I would just say on the research side, definitely 100%. You need an advisor that's like behind you and wants to want you to succeed because and you just need that's kind of the onus on the student somewhat where you need to find someone who's like on your wavelength, basically. I need someone who's in the lab all the time or is open to questions and will always help me with reactions. So that's why I joined the lab I'm in now, Dr. Fletcher's lab, because he's always in lab, will always answer my questions and will always talk about chemistry with me. So uh, this has obviously been a uh, very unprecedented year with COVID impacting everything in our society, but uh, academics uh, are certainly at the top of the list. I was wondering if you could share your experiences about how COVID has impacted your studies and tell us a little bit about how your faculty have adapted and, and what you think of those adaptations. Aishu, do you want to talk to us about that? Sure. So studying-wise, nothing actually really changed because I was in my second year of medical school when COVID hit. And because during medical school, um, I think Chris pointed this out, like you're just studying full time. Um, and so that's what I was just doing. I was just, instead of studying at the library or at the campus center, I was just studying at home. And I was actually very, very impressed on how quickly um, our school was able to adapt um, with our Office of Medical Education and our Office of Student Affairs had like great communication between the, um, the students. They, I know they were meeting constantly. I remember that week we had an exam and within like a matter of a day or two, it was quickly transitioned to like we take it at home with the honor code. 
Um, classes were immediately transitioned virtually on Zoom. We had our tech department on call um, every single day if any technical difficulties happened. Um, however, like, you know, our clinical experiences, seeing standardized patients, seeing actual patients were canceled, rightfully so, due to safety issues. Um, and then we also, after second year of medical school, you have your first USMLE licensing board exam. And it was postponed by a few months because they canceled 50% of students' exams because of uh, space. You want to reduce, ca uh, reduce capacity of those centers by 50%. And so that was postponed by a few months. So my research rotation after was postponed by a few months. So it was a little disheartening because I felt like I was a little bit behind. But then I had to remember this is, you know, this is, COVID is a huge issue. It's a huge healthcare issue, and um, things will things will work out. And um, safety is of like the utmost importance. So you gotta you gotta live and learn and adapt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it it sounds like your faculty uh, were able to do that in a way that you know, other than the logistics and the 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 timing of things. Um, but as as far as keeping up with the program, it sounds like you were able to do that. Yeah, no, they were, I was just so very impressed as I think they did a better job than I think a lot of the other schools were handling it at the time. And the faculty um, put together a COVID course to help us as uh, future physicians learn more about what's happening, um, whether it's the uh, emergency responses or COVID on a basic science level and the virus and everything like that. So I thought that was pretty amazing. That is amazing because there there isn't a deep pool of knowledge yet about COVID to pull from. So that's, you know, that adaptability, not just in terms of creating a new course and creating new content, but content that is still evolving and changing what we know about it every single day. But uh, what dedication that shows on the part of your faculty to to do that for you guys, Chris? How about you? How how on the research? You know, with the research curriculum, how, how did COVID impact what you were doing, and how did your faculty adapt? I give a lot of kudos to my department, the PSC department, because of how grad school and PhDs are structured. At least in our department, you need to pass a defense after your uh, kind of like in the middle of your second year, start of your third year. And then you need to defend your thesis, obviously, to get your PhD. And I had a friend who had his PhD defense, his thesis defense scheduled for March, mid-March, when everything was like shut down. And he still had everything set up for online because our department had a good grasp on WebEx. And he was able to get his PhD and, and uh, leave the department, get a job, move all within like the first few weeks of like lockdown, like end of March. So it was, it was really like, I don't, I didn't really recognize that until Aisha was talking about it, but like the responsiveness of the faculty and kind of the focus of like, we have a dedication to the students to keep them on schedule and not just, eh, you know, your defense, your PhD is kind of up in the air. So because of that, my defense is coming up as a second year. So I don't feel as stressed, you know, there's already the stress of trying to defend, but there's no added stress because I'm not freaking out about, oh, is it actually going to happen on the date they say or the date I set? So that's a real, um, it's, it's like, it's a real accomplishment, I think, for a lot of faculty here to keep everyone on track 
um, not only in my department, but other schools as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, we talk a lot in education about this concept of cognitive load, kind of how, how much people can have on their minds uh, at any given time. And the stress of COVID and the stress of every routine we have in our life being disrupted and also the stress of worrying whether your academic plans are on schedule, on track, going to be delayed because of this. It, it all adds to people's load. And um, the fact that your faculty recognize that and responded to it by doing everything they could to to keep things on track as best they could. Uh, that's a real testament. So what is something you wish faculty understood a bit better about the student experience or the student side of the teaching and learning equation? If there was something something that, uh, that would help you as a learner uh, for your faculty to do, what might that be? We give our feedback very intentionally and with the hopes that they implement it. And so I find that in a lot of cases, they actually do, and it's, it changes every year. They're making the curriculum better. They're making their course better. They're listening to our feedback. But then there are some cases where I'm not really sure if this is going to do anything and if the course is actually going to change and they're going to take our feedback. And so I, I want faculty to know that when we, when we give feedback, we're being very honest and we're trying to do it so that students later on um, are given even either even more up-to-date material or just improved in the way that it's the for the lectures being formatted or the way the classes run and we hope that they take that very seriously yeah yeah no that's really important it's um you know there's that that feedback is such a two-way street you know it's such an important part of that teaching and learning process and it's it's so important for all of us to remember that we we're all growing and learning and changing and and uh uh adapting to new teaching scenarios so yeah being willing to see that feedback and and to consider it um yeah that's that's really important and it's great that you've you've seen that in action also um, Chris, how about you? What are what are some things that might be helpful for faculty to know about the the student side of things? One thing that I noticed worked really well is actually the course manager role in classes. So you have students and their priorities, and you have faculty and their priorities. And it's not enough to just say, "Well, students are busy, so faculty should be more on how students are engaging with their material," because you also need to realize that faculty are also busy. So there needs to be sort of a, a role, and in this case, we have course managers, which essentially uh, kind of join the priorities of both students and faculty in order that faculty have the resources, students are on time, and the uh, software is working, and also the students' priorities that the faculty are on time, all the resources they need to learn are there, and that if they have any questions or any other needs that the court, they kind of can default to the course manager. No, that's absolutely true. I think there's, there is so much to teaching and learning on both sides that um, recognizing that there is a role for support um, on, on all of that. You know, there's a, my title is actually instructional designer and, and we, we provide that support for faculty when they're transitioning to an online space um, because that's there's a, a lot of new things about teaching and learning in an online environment. Um, but it I think it just highlights the the need that, you know, it's it's a lot for one person to do while also managing their research agenda and their administrative responsibilities and, and all the things that uh, that they have going on. So 
there's there's room for for support definitely in this space. Jeff, in the PA program, um, you're in your didactic year, so you know your your classroom experience was really disrupted by COVID, uh, like everybody's. But can you talk a little bit about about what had to change and how your faculty adapted? Yes, yeah, so I was never pre-COVID for the program. So I, when I jumped in, it was already COVID. Um, so I, I won't be, yeah, I won't be able to speak to like pre-COVID. But during COVID, I mean, it's definitely the the dynamics is very different than I than I would like. So I mean, as with anybody, we 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 need that like in-person human interaction and being able to read body language and and like. On Zoom, it, you can't do that. First of all, <laughs> they're just—it's—it's it's so hard. I mean, like, sure, you see the person, but when you have like forty people in, in a Zoom, you, you don't see everybody, and and it's hard for the professors too. I mean, they can't—they can't read the room as well. Um, and also, being in person, it's—it's it's easier to like interject and be like, "Oh, I have a question," and, and like the professor, professor is able to see that. Um, on Zoom, I feel very stifled. And so it's like, I, I want to ask so many questions. I want to like answer all these questions they're saying, but then, but I'm, I'm like busy typing and then I have to like go over to Zoom and unmute myself. And just literally that like two second delay is enough to have such cognitive dissonance and like this kind of like that uncanny valley. I mean, that's not the definition of uncanny valley, but like kind of that thing where it's just so unnatural. Um, so, it, I mean, we're doing the best we can with it. I mean, it kind of is what it is, and, and that's how I've always um, viewed it. But I mean, the faculty, in terms of how they are adapting, though, so in terms of medical, um, you need to be in person to do physical exams, to do any kind of like physical skills. And so um, the first semester, the summer semester last year, we it was purely virtual. And so we had to learn how to do a physical exam virtually, which was I mean, as you can imagine, that doesn't make much sense. And so um, that I, I, we did it on teddy bears and like and, and friends and family that were like, you know, close to us. And um, so that helped to like have friends and family. But even with, with COVID, I mean, you're, you're still scared. Um, and doing on teddy bears is, is not ideal. <laughs> they don't have organs <laughs> like we do. But, <laughs> um, but then I did notice that like as the faculty got more like leniency from UMB themselves. They were able to incorporate more in person. So like the um, following semester, the fall semester, that one we we went in like once a week. And then this semester, the spring semester, we are going in like twice a week. And so it seems like they are, they're trying to push it as much as they can per COVID regulations. And, um, and it's definitely helped a lot now that we are in person and are able to practice on each other because that's ideally that's how the program works is that you practice the physical exam on on each other like the students and um yeah and and so i mean i think they are adapting as much as they can and they're trying to give us as many resources i mean they again they, they reach out i mean we can reach out to them like anytime outside of class and so they're they're doing their best but i think everybody it's just a learning curve for everybody yeah yeah. Chris or Aishu, do you have anything to add to that? Anything you think might stick around? Um, what Jeff was talking about with kind of the literacy of online programs have, has just gone up exponentially. 
I I don't think why well, I don't know why any teacher would want to have physical office hours anymore. <laughs> if if I'm a professor and my office hours are at the end of the day, I'm just gonna say, hey, you know, hit me up on WebEx from four to five while I'm home. Like, I I think that's that's a real, um, I think it's a it's a positive, but I think it also looking in the future, you know, however many years until we get back to normalcy. Um, I, I think it's it needs still needs to be a balance. I would definitely still take in in uh, in person classes over only online if I had the choice. But it's always a good thing for people to be more literate with computers. I think. Yeah. Aishu, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I think I definitely agree with both Chris and Jeff that a lot of the Zoom and online uh, platforms are going to persist, especially with meetings. I'm curious if, you know, with attendance and things like that, if someone is unable to make it to class, there will also be a Zoom link that, you know, people can just join in. So you might have like kind of like a hybrid, some people in person, some people not able to make it can just uh, be there virtually. I'm really curious in terms of the clinical side. So I have, you know, I'm now in the graduate school, so I'm not really sure what's going on, but I'm curious if like telehealth and a lot of the telemed um, virtual um, appointments are going to stay, especially with people who might not be able to, you know, make it to their doctor's appointments physically. Um, and if that's something that's going to be incorporated into medical education and preclinical and clinical years, in addition to in-person, because in my opinion, you can't really replace the in-person um uh, physician or any healthcare profession appointments because that's so important like you need to be able to do a physical exam because that's how you diagnose and treat patients and you need to be able to have that human contact and talk to them because that human connection is so important in um, developing a rapport and a relationship with all your patients so I'm really curious on that front how telemed and telehealth are going to kind of balance with the in-person um, especially with that incorporation into education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I know that in in clinical education, finding clinical sites and placements for students is always a challenge, um, and telehealth has really opened that up. Um, and it's also a medical skill. I think that will be that will be affecting your lives going forward. Um, so in that sense, it makes sense to add that tool to your clinical toolbox. Uh, but certainly. It sounds like on both the education side and the medical side, uh, the human contact isn't going anywhere. I think COVID's really reminded us how important that is, how special that is. Uh, I'm wondering if any of you have had an opportunity to uh, dip your toes into the field of education yourself. Either, I think Chris mentioned his experience as a TA or any other kind of teaching. And if that's something that you might see for yourself on the horizon, uh, you know, being involved in medical education, health professions education. Is that something that interests you? Chris, do you want to start? I can definitely see myself in 10 years if I continue, when I can, when I continue down this path, I can definitely see myself taking on interns or, um, you know, graduate interns and teaching them uh, things about that. I'm more of like a mentor or a coach than I am a teacher. And the one thing that I guess I would say for people who are like who are like me is um, kind of like 
I think first and foremost, even and then this also applies with the larger teaching format. I think respect is kind of the number one thing that you should try to come across, come come off as to your students, no matter what you're doing. Like, for example, I have a master student that just joined the lab, and uh, she has basically zero chemistry background. And I was explaining to her all these fundamental things, and I kind of had to stop myself and just say, "Okay, just 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 to check, I'm not patronizing you, right?" I want to make sure what I'm telling you is actual information and not like I'm I'm just talking to you like you're a dunce or something. So I think no matter what, that's my one piece of advice, even though I don't plan on being a professor per se, like in a general sense where I'm teaching 70 person lectures on the daily, I still think respect is like the number one thing. Absolutely. And that mentorship is such an important part of anyone's formation. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone gets gets to where we want to be in our career without without that mentorship. So we need both. We need that faculty experience and the mentor. And and you're right, that sense of respect and and uh mutual mutual respect and uh awareness of where what someone's experience is uh and factoring that into how you how you engage with them is so important for any kind of faculty or mentor. Right. Just real quick re- real quick before before we move on, I just it's really funny because, you know, I'm talking about mentorship and grad school. It's like when you talk to someone who had, doesn't have experience with grad school and I tell them about my position, they get really like they get all like, wow, you work with cancer and stuff like that. But it really is like an apprenticeship, like a trade. It's like at a certain point with your profession, you can't just read a book. You need to go up to someone and ask to be mentored and looked after. So I think that's that. I think that's just kind of funny after like. 20, 21 years of reading books, studying, taking tests. It's like, all right, now you, you're basically an apprenticeship. Like I'm in an apprenticeship right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I, shoot, I saw you nodding your head about that, the idea of mentorship and apprenticeship and books Books aren't going to do it forever. Yeah, no, I can completely relate, especially with um, whether it's, you know, on the clinical side where you're talking to patients, seeing patients during physical exams, it's all about experience and you can't just read a book and know how to do that 100%. And on the lab research side, it's all about experience and, you know, really immersing yourself in um, critical thinking and different lab techniques. You can't read a book and know how to do that. There's all these like nitty gritty details that no one's going to write about. And your person mentoring you is going to be like, oh, don't do that, do this, or this is how you do this technique. Um, So I 100% agree with what you said, Chris. Do you see yourself in a mentorship role uh, going forward or in a teaching role? Yeah, so I actually TA did supplemental instruction, tutored a lot in college. And when I was a research assistant in my undergraduate lab, the way that it worked there is that a lot of the undergrad students were trained during their first summer in the lab. And then they would train any students coming in after. So like you were trained by students who are already there and then you're training the new students that come after and I learned I learned that I learned so much as redundant as it sounds I learned so much when students were asking me questions because I'd be like I don't know the answer okay I'm going to look that up and then we can learn together so that having the opportunity to mentor and train new students made me a better researcher and also you know helps you with um, developing skills on how to be a mentor um, and something that, you know, you're always improving. I can't say that, like, you know, I'm a great 
mentor. I know everything there is to know about training people because the way you mentor one person isn't the same way that you mentor another person. I think Chris touched on that earlier too, because, you know, there might be someone who has no background in example with the research side, no background coming in. And so you have to start at the basics and, you know, making sure like you're catering to their experiences as opposed to maybe someone with a lot of experience and they might want you to be hands off. So you're going to be like, okay, just come to me when you have questions. So I'm not, you know, stepping on your toes or, you know, making you feel like I'm patronizing you. You want to make sure you're respectful of their experiences. Yeah. And in our other episodes of this podcast, we talk so much about uh, knowing your students and and really adapting your teaching style and your approach uh, based on what you know about their backgrounds and their experience and their interests and to the extent that you can do that. And so it's it's fascinating to me that even with with maybe not as much formal teaching experience, you are touching on exactly the same thing. Your instincts are uh, exactly the same. So I, th- I think that bodes well for any kind of instruction or mentorship you're thinking about in the future. You can tell you already have that mindset. Jeff, how about you? Do you see yourself maybe being a preceptor later on or, or working with students in other ways uh, as as you become a PA and enter that clinical space? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I totally agree with what Chris and Aishu said. So, I mean, I don't think I would get into academia, but but definitely some kind of like a preceptor mentorship kind of thing. Because um, I used to teach music, like guitar and piano, and I did private lessons. I did that for like eight years-ish. And I mean, like, I just know how rewarding it is to to have somebody under your belt and you just guide them through. And every time they like are able to succeed in like the little baby steps that they take, it's just to me, it's nothing's more rewarding. So and I can't imagine that it's the same thing for, you know, being a preceptor. Well, this has been such a great conversation. Um, You know, I know as students, you are receiving health professions education, but as you as you think about your fields, your disciplines, uh, and teaching and learning in those fields, is there anything that you see on the horizon that you think could really move the needle uh, for students who are studying what you're studying now? Is there anything you're excited about in your field from the education side? Um, I would. So I kind of have a thought. Let's see if I can I can string this along. But uh, going off what Jeff said about you know learning is kind of cool now, quote unquote. I think, yeah, with all the resources that people have, even at a young age, I mean, I, I still think like, like it's become more, it's becoming more and more apparent, like how much stuff like a 13 year old can learn. So I, what I'm excited about in 20 ish years is I'm excited to kind of look back at students who are currently in the same position I'm at. And I'm excited just to see how much they know off the bat and kind of like, I'm excited to see how faculty kind of, you know, factor that in. And I sort of see education becoming less and less textbook, quiz, textbook, exam. And I'm 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 seeing it more evolve into you can kind of carve your own path. I'm very individualistic, so I hope that's the outcome. But I just don't see, you know, if if your if your students are on average here and your materials kind of here it's no longer gonna it's it's not gonna cut it anymore i think faculty are gonna have to evolve with students evolve with technology evolve with the common 
quote unquote knowledge that's out there. So that's what I'm really excited for. I know there's a concept called the, I think it's the Flynn principle. Generations go on, they become smarter, but I think technology is just a huge uh, catalyst for that. So I'm excited for more individualized learning in the future. Yeah. So less people coming kind of from this shared formation and, uh, you know, more people carving out, like you said, carving out those niches for themselves and really taking those uh, forward. That's so interesting. Yeah. Anybody else? Right. And even, and so, sorry to jump in, but I, what I also like about the advent of YouTube and all these other things for either free or cheap, like it's no longer, I don't think necessarily you have to put your kid through the top private school, high school to get the best education anymore. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I don't think, I think the financial barrier is lowering and lowering. And I only, you know, we didn't talk, this is not really a politics podcast, but like, I think more people learning is in general better. So yeah, I rest my case. (laughs) That's great. Anyone else have any thoughts about kind of what's on the horizon? Yeah. um, to To go off what Chris said. So it's very interesting to see the new school versus an old school way of teaching. So, and I've seen that with just my program. I mean, we have some like younger professors, some some older professors who've been in, in the game for quite a long time. And the old school way is very like, you know, read this textbook, you have to know everything in this textbook and we're gonna, you know, test you on that. And, and that's, that's just how it, they kind of teach it. And then the new school <clears throat> is more like, yeah, we use textbooks and like we're basing everything on textbooks, but like, here are all these videos online that you can also watch to supplement. So, I mean, like the, all the younger professors will give us a lot of videos, like Khan Academy is a really good resource. Osmosis is really good for, for like medical. I mean, that's like saved my life. I mean, I, and I do, I do still read the books, but I mean, like there's just infinite amount of knowledge in there that you will never be able to like fully remember and or grasp i mean besides getting the big picture um so these these videos definitely de- they help to just kind of consolidate all the information to something that's a little bit more digestible um and then also to go off what chris said about like you don't need like the top education to to do whatever i mean like you can say that for like i mean i think who like you know bill gates all, all, a lot of billionaires i mean like they didn't even go to to undergrad and and they don't have like the best education i mean but and so yeah today in today's world you can if talk about like if if you uh, measure success in terms of like how lucrative your career is i mean there are people who are like youtube stars who make you know six figures and they just they're living their life and i mean i'm kind of jealous of that but i mean but i'm I'm in medicine because i love it so i mean it's it's not it's not all too bad but i mean there's definitely you you can do trade schools i mean i've heard about um like in terms of technology you you so if you want to like make a lot of money pretty quick you can go to these it's like these like boot camps for for programming or some kind of software programming and it's like a six month program and then people come out making six figures i mean so it's definitely changed the way we think of of like a career conventional Mm-hmm. Kind of like what Chris was saying with a, a more equalized approach to to getting on those different pathways. Yeah. Aishu, what do you think? What what do you see on the on the horizon? Yeah, so um I really think that the new the conventional way of teaching with lecturing um to students is kind of evolving, as Chris said, to more individualized learning. I think that 
more faculty teachers and professors are open to the idea of this flipped classroom engaging students this discussion and that's really great because you know it's helping students of who may not you know thrive under just having someone lecture at them and into having this engaging discussion where you can be more open to asking questions in a more comfortable environment and being able to learn from your peers in addition to your professors. And so I think with that involvement, I think it's really exciting because now we're allowing for a more engaging discussion and allowing for all types of students to thrive, not just the ones who are, you know, work well with just this lecture style of teaching. Yeah. Yeah, that it is a big shift for faculty to transition from a lecture based approach um, to to these more active learning strategies. But the you know, just like in medicine, we have to catch up a little bit sometimes to what to the literature. And I think that's happening now in education. We know that learning improves the the more students are engaged in it and, and the more that they do. Um, uh, but it, it takes a while sometimes for those practices to trickle down into practice. But I, I'm glad that you're seeing that because uh, that makes me really excited about uh, what's on the horizon for all of our students. Well, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your time and your insights with us today. This has been so interesting and it's just been such a great opportunity to get to know you and to hear a little bit about the student life here at UMB, both uh, pre-COVID and during COVID. And we'll look forward to talking to you post-COVID and seeing, checking in, seeing how things are going for you. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, we really, really appreciate hearing from you today. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.